0: John Willis again, another um, Deming Profound podcast. I've got uh, one, uh, another sort of fun, famous, and uh, veteran DevOps person. Dominica, mm-hmm. you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Dominica DeGrandis. I'm principal, full advisor at TaskTop, um, probably best known as my uh, author, of Making Work Visible. And I live in Woodinville, Washington, which is about uh, you know, just outside of Seattle.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, so we met like, it, like one of the earliest DevOps days, if not the first American DevOps days, I think it probably was the first American. DevOps. It
1: was in the, the one at LinkedIn. Yep. And
0: yeah, yeah. Well, yeah.
1: And,
0: the, and the thing I like, so, um, you know, I'd heard about Kanban and all, and then you gave a, you gave a session. I don't know if it was in an open spaces about, about Kanban. And, um, and, and that was really helpful. And then um, the thing I, I just I mean I probably became a pest to you is like, did you bring the Kanban? every time you'd show up at a DevOps Day, stay, did you bring the Kanban game? Did you bring the Kanban? They're like, let's run an open spaces with a Kanban game. You know, I was just I used to love getting a couple of teams, like have two or three different teams and create different strategies. That was it was so much fun. The, the, all your work there. Um you remember all doing all that, of course.
1: Yeah, I would bring those to different DevOps uh, DevOps days conferences. Yeah, and that first one, I, I think that's where we first met. I gave a, an Ignite talk and where I talked about control limits because customers always complain that things take too long. Okay, well, how long do things actually take? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's look at, start looking at the data. And so I was talking about upper control limit and lower control limit. Because uh, I found, I don't remember where I first heard of, oh, well, it was probably when I was working for David Anderson first came across Deming and, and Reinertson, you know, Reinertsen came to Corbis back in I don't know, 2005, 2006. Um, and that's probably when I, Picked up the old. Okay, there you go.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that that was. Um. You know, I, I usually start with that, and I just I was just thinking about the Kanban game and how much fun that was. It's sort a. Of, it took me off course for a minute, but like, what are your thoughts? That, that I guess the question I ask everybody: What are your thoughts about Dr. Deming? How it applies today, and um, you know, you know, what is the impact of?
1: I just consider Deming. You kind of like the original DevOps mindset because, you know, the 14 principles. And I, I look back, I look way back. I wish it, sometimes when I make notes in books, I wish I would put the date. Mm. Number nine, I have handwritten in this book, DevOps, breaking down barriers between departments. He's right. talking about it way back here about the problems with silos right. and the impacts. Um, that it makes and how we really need to um you know we need to remove these barriers. So I think that was
0: basically. Yeah, It's just it's uncanny when you sort of look at like his either seven deadly sins. And most people most famous are familiar with the 14 points, right? And and you can just sort of see, you know, the like you said, the nine breaking down uh, the barriers, driving out fear was number eight, right? That's-
1: yeah, that's my other favorite one. Uh, the, the whole he—he's talking. Demi's talking about it way sooner than anybody else yeah, I know, yeah, it, yeah. other than maybe Ron Westrom, But bringing that to light, the challenges that people have for uh, saying no because of fear and taking on way too much width than they have capacity to do, uh, and and just this psychological safety aspect that has gained a lot of traction now in the DevOps community. It's so great to see.
0: And and we don't talk about this as much in the DevOps, you know, and, and, you know, like I said, I, you've been involved in this as long as I, maybe I got beat by eight months basically, (laughs) but uh, the, um, you know, is one of his thoughts is pride of workership, right? Like the, the idea that we don't, um, you know, we, we, we talk about culture and we talk about behavior a lot, but But sometimes I don't know that we really sort of focus on the uh, sort of yeah how individuals are treated in the cog right like and and I think that's important too. I know you've worked for a lot of companies.
1: Yeah, I see it all the time. I see it kind of getting worse.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate.
1: With with of the pandemic and people working remote in front of their screens all day and all night, in the sense of true urgency and anxiety and and stress given the geopolitical atmosphere and yeah. um uh and I was just on a call this morning it's really big bank people say we can't say no we can't say no we have you know the the sales team has agreed to this date and we have to march to that and trying to find ways to help people show evidence of why taking on too much whip is going to extend their time to market. It's a real struggle. Yeah. People just, I think, real fearful of the consequences, maybe seeing some of their peers get laid off or some companies. uh, but, but, To back to Deming's point, survival is not mandatory. That's right. And so um, there has to be some effort in order to survive as we move into this tremendous world of uncertainty, unprecedented times of, uh, I mean, what is it? Half of the um, the, um, public... You know, Fortune 100 companies or whatever expected to be replaced within the next eight years, eight to ten years, something. That's crazy. like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the 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 fear, the personalization. I mean, you know, I was thinking more. You know, I definitely want to go through all your work about sort of WIP and, and visible making work visible, which I think is an amazing book. Right, I really, it's one of my favorite books out of the you know all the whole IT revolution portfolio. Um, the um, but I think I was thinking like you, you. I think you your superpowers. And I think about it, and even how, as I talk to you now, is that getting people to explain why they can't say no, right? Like that. It's not just like you know, like you you have these great ignite talks. Uh, you know, yeah. that people say we'll put show notes in about like you know, sort of tongue in cheek. You know, they're like brilliantly funny, but they're sort of very informative. But it sounds like to me that that's that's your sort of superpowers, like getting like somebody say, well, I can't say no. Okay. And then you go into what you do, right. Which is.
1: Well, asking them why, why they can't say no. Why do people take on more capacity, uh, more width than they have capacity to do. And we get there's a real pattern in those responses, things like um, we didn't, realize how big the request really was until we got into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because things always take longer than we think they will. Um, things like, I mean, there's the people pleasers. That's part of human nature and right. tribal mentality that if we're going to stay with, you know, it's this, it's this balance between authenticity and um, an attachment. Right. We, we grew up having to be attached to our parents in order to survive. And I think that carries along with some people and it makes it we need we feel the need to be accommodating and say yes. Uh, when we really want to say no. Um, and then there's you know, people take on people don't say no because. Like, and I fall in this category, what I call shiny new object syndrome, Right. Like there's so many cool things that that's I want that. to do that's that I, I want to do them all. That's it's a story not, of my
0: life, by the way, but yeah. <laughs>
1: it's not yeah. being pushed on me. It's, it's, I'm doing it to myself. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of these reasons, yeah, there are cultures where work is pushed on organizations and people feel that they can't say no, but I, I do believe that we, we do this a lot to ourselves. We, we say yes, because there's so many cool new things that can be
0: done you know you know I just remembered um, you know I remember I, I before I met you I would heard about kanban I think I had read Jim Benson's personal kanban uh, and you know it was like okay it was kind of making sense and I think it was that you it was a it was a discussion that me you and Stephen Nelson Smith was have no probably other people there but and the thing that the light bulb that really went off on me is this idea and I think it was you but it was a sort of a dialogue between you and and Stephen Nelson Smith, that like you have to stand up every morning and you sort of look at the board and you look you know, you sort of look at the work of products. And so you have people kind of tell what they're working on and, you know, like, and like, okay, how's that going? And like, yeah, you know, it's taking a little longer. And then on the second day, the third day, it's still, it's taking a little longer. And this idea that at that point you could say, and I'm trying to go back to my cobwebs of memory, but like, almost like, okay, can't we just put it back in the queue? You know, in other words, we can sort of backwash and, and it like, that was so, um it's such an anti-pattern to the classic, you know, you know, yeah, you know, what we you know, Mick would call the, you know, project, the, the product or just that whole way of thinking that like, wow. Well, yeah, of course. Why couldn't you just like send it sort of back, break it up, and now it's turned into, and that, that was so enlightening to me that, you know, the, 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 the sort of traditional, the way up into the early days of DevOps, my thinking pattern was like just a complete sort of left to right nonstop. I thought that was really helpful.
1: I think that the main thing that it does is it, it provokes conversation, necessary conversation on is this the highest priority thing to do right now? And if so, then let's finish it before we start something else. If not, then, okay, get rid of it. If it's a zombie, what Reinhardt would talk about with zombie projects, they just don't get the love, the budget, the attention that they need, but people don't want to stop them because of their, whatever, sunk cost bias, uh, because there's so much
0: effort that's gone into it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The sunk cost bias is interesting because that was the thing again, to me that I think I was stuck on that bias of work from being in the industry at that point. I am still, you know, probably about 25 years and, and, and the idea that like, they just couldn't we just start over and break it up. Right. And and that, that was sort of very enlightening. I think, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what your, your, your book and the five thieves, the making work visible and uh, you know i think the, the 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 real sort of anchor in that book is that five these of time right and and i was going through some of deming's work and i was trying to say like you know his you know aim or consistency of purpose right that's priorities right um, you know the, the dependencies you know he, he's talking about inspection but but that's your sort of um, you know you you have that in in your wip you have it in sort of the unknown dependencies Anyway, let me stop. Why don't you explain um, the premise for making work visible, and then the five days of time?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, a visual learner, and when I started researching about making work visible, I discovered how fundamental it is to improving our work because most people and uh, their visual sense is their greatest. Uh, intake, you know, we we what we perceive through our eyes and through vision helps us understand patterns and themes and and improve our work. And so, if we're not making work visible, uh, especially if we're on calls and we're just speaking and we don't see the work or we don't see each other's facial expressions, it hinders that progress. So, I really wanted to write about making work visible and address some of the common problems. I came up with time theft and time thieves as a way to um, sort of, you know, with the hand-drawn illustrations, kind of take these ideas and put them in a visual manner that people could understand immediately. And because they're hand-drawn illustrations, it's it's a little bit lighthearted because it's a really serious topic.
0: Right. Right.
1: And and. Making them sort of cartoon figures allowed us to, to sort of attach the issue to that, that idea, that idea of too much. whip. So five at a time, too much work in progress, unplanned work, conflicting priorities, unknown dependencies and neglected whip, at which most people can relate to those. They get it when they see those. And so the book. Uh, Revolves around identifying these different time thieves, the causes, uh, you know, why they happen, why it matters, and then what to do about it. And putting in actionable exercises that teams could do, people could do, um, to start to experiment with so that they could affect change. I think that's one of my real goals, not just in the book, but also in the workshops that I do. With companies is to help them show the evidence so they can influence others and affect change versus just saying we can't do that.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I a lot of times when I'm I'm trying to explain, you know, the the making work visible and some of the work I've done, and you know, point out to people that that visible is doesn't in your sort of classic reaction to visible isn't just screens, right? It's it's communication, right? It's, it's sort of bubbling up the things so that they're sort of mentally visible, you know, and, and I, I think that that's, uh, and, and the, the whip is an interesting thing too. I mean, I would expect a lot of people who listen is probably well-versed in this, but, but why is it important? Why is it important to, uh, you know, I mean, even like, I, you know, I don't want to confuse everybody too far. I, I think even Dora failed to explain, they, they were able to explain almost all the principles of DevOps beautifully in, in the in the, in the, you know the psychometric data and the surveys and all that but they, they each time and every year we always say you know we've not been able to explain with, but we all know and we know it from toyota we know it you know okay, I think that's a big part of your work and study right why why is managing WIP? why is it so risk? hard or, hard is good too yeah hard and yeah all right let's go with hard yeah I think why is it necessary but like I think that may be well hard.
1: why is it necessary well. It's necessary because if we're going to get the work of our life done, we need to focus carefully on a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And if that thing gets interrupted and we have to context switch out of that, it's taking away from getting our most important thing done. We have to ruthlessly protect our time. Because a decision to do A is a decision to delay B. I think Troy McGinnis first said that, and I, it's 100% spot on. Uh, and we think that we things always take longer than we think. And mm-hmm. we think we can do, we're very optimistic. Mm-hmm, we think mm-hmm. we can do more than the time period given, uh, especially if we, if it wants to be high quality. If we're going to get Deming's quality aspect in there. We need time to do it and reflect and get that feedback. And often that isn't possible if we're just rushed through and we have to move on to the next thing. So um, also the work we're doing is complex or complicated, and we need this time to focus on it. We need large chunks of time, 90 minutes, two hours to go deep into a subject And um, think about it, which is hard for people to get if they're in back to back meetings all day long. If they got an all day cram calendar going on, then when do they do their very most important work? They do it at midnight or they do it at Sunday afternoon. Uh, But if we, I would argue that if we can't get our very most important work done during regular business hours, that's a problem. And uh,
0: you have other uh, distractions at that point, right? If you're, you're trying to get, I mean, every Sunday, I'm like this on Sunday afternoon, I'm going to basically catch up on all, like it, it, there's so many life distractions on the weekends. You know, it's like the testing thing, right? Like we, I think we learned in DevOps, like, you know, the testing on the weekend is like a, a false narrative. Like you test at the middle of the day on Wednesday. You know, your
1: deployments like, during the middle of the day on Wednesday. Well so if yeah. you're gonna
0: write, you know, if you're gonna sort of build something or create something, like do it at in your, you know, like I mean, your hopefully your corporation spent a reasonable amount of money to make you comfortable in your working space. You've got, you know, the resources that you need, like that's the time to your point, that's the time you should be like really getting your sort of like 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours time.
1: Mm-hmm. Not
0: sort of catch as catch can on the weekend or midnight.
1: Yeah, it's not sustainable for many people. Some people it is, you know, if you're, if that's your work, the work of your life and you love to do that, or you're self employed or independent, and these are your own priorities and you're empowered to make those um, decisions and you decide, that's one thing. But if the push versus pull system is coming from leadership because Business or sales teams have agreed to a date that the teams can't possibly meet because they don't have the capacity or the or, or the throughput to get there. Then that not only impacts psychological safety in the teams, but it also impacts the company's bottom line with their time yeah. to market.
0: And it's stress too. And then you want look, and that's the sort of the, the 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 sort of the head fake is that you actually get higher performance. When you narrow the whip, you get better quality. Which seems, yeah. kind of, I mean, when I was first reading uh, or hearing about Kanban, I was like, I was actually running a team at, at a cloud company, and and I remember saying to myself, "This will not work." You know, people are already way too busy already. Like I'm going to actually, you know, shorten their amount of time they can work. And then I read Jim Benson's book, and then you know, he had some good analogies, and I started realizing that there's there's this sort of. Uh, Um, not intuitive efficiencies
1: that you get? Well, the sheer amount of cognitive load on the brain has a limit. Uh, You know, the amount of time that you can hold something in short-term memory long enough that it will actually pass to long-term memory. And if we don't hold it in our short-term memory long enough, then we have this cognitive overload and, people will ask, well, how much is too much? And it turns out that depends on your level of stress. Because mm. if we're under too much duress or stress or anxiety, then our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and we're not in a state of, um, of calmness, for lack of a better word, to, for that learning to occur. And so now what's happening with the pandemic and, uh, you know, geopolitical situation, a lot of duress, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. Things can take longer now for people just to learn new concepts and why even why it's now even more important to ensure that people have dedicated uninterrupted time you know, put some do not disturb hours on the calendar to have this time to think and reflect and have higher quality in the work too.
0: Yeah. You know, there, you know, when I was doing research on burnout, right. There was, um, yeah, you know, everybody knows Christina Maslach, but there was this other woman who um, her study showed that, that um, in you know later stages of burnout, right. Like you, 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 I mean, you sort of start losing incredible efficacy in your employees. And she correlated that with her study basically showed that um, it was typically the highest performing employees that had burnout. So now you have your trusted um, and, and it takes a really long time to even, if ever, recognize the burnout. And so now you've got your sort of top, most trusted people in your organization. You know, you're stealing That 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 they're they're sort of their their cognitive power to create by these stresses, and you're actually getting you know like imagine somebody who's in charge of the protecting the brand or security, and now they're not really operating. You
1: know, I always remember Christina Maslach's um, point about burnout, and one of the uh, attributes was loss of confidence. When we need people to be really confident in what they're doing and coming at their work from a sense of can do spirit versus this lack of confidence from all this stress and potential burnout.
0: Yeah. I hadn't really thought about like what, you know, what it's like now because we all have such crazy stresses, right. Depending on where you are politically and, and then just everything going on. It's just, it's, you know I hadn't really thought about that, how how like sort of dangerous that is for all of our collective work at this point.
1: And how people can try and elevate that, bring visibility to that to help them. Because we all know if the team can if, if people are coming from a position of confidence and and calm, it'll be so much more effective, which is in turn gonna improve their. Resilience and productivity, it's all going to help the company.
0: Yeah, no, and you know, you've all been worked in those scenarios where it's just, there's just like these time bombs all around you, right? And, and like, and, and it's like, it's it's such an unproductive when you go in a meeting with like 10 people and you know there's like this, anything can erupt, you know, because, you know, it just, I mean, you don't get the optimum output out of anybody in those scenarios. Mm-hmm. I did want to jump into um, the other area I think I love, I, what I love about your five is the, is the unknown. You know, I think that what I find when I sort of interview and I talk to people um, is, um, yeah, you know, I started this process a while back and, and I, I, I call it qualitative analysis. You know, I actually have used some rudimentary qualitative analysis tools and and Jay Bloom has helped me really sort of understand you know how to really sort of do that more as, as a science than me just asking a lot of questions. Um, but one of the things I find when I go in and I interview through this process, you know, um, hundreds, couple hundred people, is how much. Um, you know, I think John Osborne called it dark matter. I mean, he was talking more about incidents, but it's it's everything. It's the dependency map. It's the well. In fact, um, I, I, it wasn't in your book, I don't think, but I think in one of the papers you. You, you worked on, the IT revolution. You use Gene Kim's um, Phoenix Project analogy. I don't know if you remember this right, The of the the question gets asked like, why does it take you um, you know 72 hours to do something that should have took an hour?
1: Yeah.
0: And then when you break it down, it's like, yeah, my part's basically an hour, but I've got basically uh, seven dependencies and every one of us has a queue of 90. Like, so then the math comes out to be like 72 hours because nobody asks. And I see this all the time when you ask people, you know, um, you know, how long does it take you to do, you know, where does the work start? And they walk through and they do that. And, and I, I don't do the stopwatch, but I'll, I'll basically sort of ask like, well, how long that take? And I'll say, really, that, that took like, you know, an hour. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, how did you go through like LDAP and authentic? did you get? Oh, well, yeah, no, that was another three days. And that was, but the, the answer that you get is the first answer. If you don't cry
1: is one hour. Yeah. Because it's, we're not looking at duration. We're just looking at how long is it going to take me to do my bit? If I wasn't interrupted, Amazing. it doesn't address all the dependencies on bottlenecks or dependencies on Highly skilled experts who are needed to do some work. And if they're needed across multiple teams, then they're likely not available when you need them. Mm -hmm. You're going to wait on their expertise until they have capacity. And if they're on a different team, team A's priority isn't team B's priority. And if the priorities are constantly changing, then it's going to increase the wait time. And I think that's why fundamentally being in a position to measure the wait time along with that work time, the active time, to understand duration and flow time. So we and have sure. flow
0: metrics. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I am such a big fan of flow metrics because. You know, I think about, uh, it's no disrespect to all the work that's been done for, you know, the magic four variables, right? The lead time, you know, uh, you know we can debate MTTR till the day is long, and a <laughs> bad. But, but lead time, um, you know, deploys, okay. But I mean, lead time was a reasonable marker to help people get from, we do it once a year till we get to some steady state we're improving. At that point, I think then you sort of lose the efficacy of what lead time means, I'm saying there's there's a point of diminishing returns. You get to like if I'm because it, it isn't a matter like whether you do ten or you could do a hundred. Could you do a thousand an hour like that? That's sort of nonsense because there's a point that is an efficiency for your. Well, ownership. it
1: goes back to what's your goal and and what's your who's your customer and what do they want? What are they not, grumbling about?
0: Yeah, what do you need? Like, you, like you shouldn't sort of like, oh, I only do ten blows a day. I stink, right? But that's not the point. But the thing was that, like I said, there is a point where you get to where I don't think that number means as much, right? Your lead time, and in fact, it then starts. You start breaking the sciences. Like, okay, wait a minute. We got an average. And then it was you who, you know, I heard about flow matrix, so I'm like, here we go. again. Not, not that I would think you would work for some shady organization. And I know mix, you know, quality, you know, the uh, one of the founders of, of your um, desktop. But I was like, okay, you know, they're sort of, it's a new, and then I, you, I, I was able to sort of pin you down and you explained it. And, and it was like, so simple. Like, yeah, it's basically lead time. With wait time included. I know it's more complicated than that, but, but like, oh, of course that now I can get to see, and I can really, really decouple, you know, where am I losing my time? Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, the other reason I started using flow time is because of all the debates and arguments across the meetings between cycle time and lead time. And if we bring flow time in, people will say, what's flow time? And so then we get to define what that means. And we're starting, you know, where do we start the clock? Well, let's start the clock when, on flow time, when we start work on something, hopefully, ideally, as far left upstream as possible. And let's end the clock when that request, when the person who made that request can actually consume that. And so it's a duration that's going to include all the wait times in there from all the dependencies. And this helps drive experiments where teams can see, okay, let's make our wait time visible too. Let's insert wait states, you know, waiting on analysis or waiting on UAT or wherever they think the bottleneck is to bring some visibility and to show our stakeholders and show our leadership, how long things are taking and why. And then we can start to have discussions on how to bring visibility to the bottleneck and elevate it and and invest in that bottleneck. So things can flow, flow faster.
0: I think that's the key. If you don't, if you're not looking at the flow, you're not really able to investigate the bottlenecks, right? Because you just don't know, um, you know, if something is averaging two hours forever and it goes up to four hours for one period of time, okay, yeah, something's not right, but, like, I don't know. But if I find that, like, there was a piece in there, like your point, the, the, the sort of duration of when it was, like, all of a sudden somebody, a department, I mean, it was a famous Toyota story where, the, um, the cycle time or something had gone up really high and they, nothing had changed, they thought. But the uh, sort of the just-in-time mechanisms, there was somebody put up like a temporary uh, office building in the building that the automated cart couldn't go through anymore. So it had to go all the way around the the line, right? And that was like, the just breaking down the cycle time did not help that. But when you were able to start seeing, like, the sort of the the um, the sort of Kanban for hardware numbers and investigate there, they're like, oh, there's somebody, some idiot put a temporary office cube set right in the path of, uh, yeah, it, it could be a folklore story. But but that was, I thought that was a brilliant story of, like, you will not see those kind of things unless you're looking. You can identify the weight.
1: It's made visible.
0: Yeah, it's right visible. Yeah, yeah
1: it's made visible. Otherwise there's no evidence. If there's no evidence, it's hard to build a case for change. So if we're trying to affect change, we need evidence. Otherwise it's a perfect crime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> perfect crime. Five pieces. That should be your next book. I know you said you don't ever want to write a book again, but the perfect crime would be an awesome. <laughs>
1: perfect crime. Yeah. Uh. So just to comment on Something you said there, I think that um, helping teams, just helping people in general to address the objections, the pushback that they're getting whenever they're trying to reduce WIP or improve their flow time or their throughput uh, so that it can match their capacity. That's where the real pain points are with the teams I've been Working with forever is them trying to affect change and how they go about doing it. And I think it's the metrics and the data that brings in that credibility. Yeah. Okay. Um, And, you know, my beginnings, I was a build engineer. I spent most of my career doing configuration management and releases, and was always this kind of middle way between engineering and operations. And developers were always grumbling about how long builds would take. And I would rant that we didn't have automated testing, but my ranting really got me nowhere. It wasn't until I could present calmly in front of leadership at these monthly operational reviews the, the data. You know, we, we used King of Flow diagrams back in the day, but to just show the difference. Uh, with how much whip we had and the impact that had to time to market and how long builds took. I was floored at the results of that because I got budget, I got headcount, but probably more importantly, I got empathy for the sheer volume of what we were trying to accomplish. And through that, and I was terrified doing it, speaking in front of a group of people but doing that and showing the evidence showing that data uh, was what allowed us to affect some changes and improve our flow and shorten builds and to be able to deliver those requests faster and i do feel like well if i can do that other people can do that too let's just find a forum where people can present their findings And let's do it in a safe way using experiments because experiments by their very nature are prone to failure. And so it's okay if your experiment doesn't quite go the way that you thought it would, but it's going to give you, you're going to learn something more than you knew in the past. And so it will influence future decisions and priorities of what to do next, which is all we can really ask for
0: right now. That is the key, you know. I, I love, um, you know, Steven Spear. Right, he, um you know, his. I guess he got his Ph.D. in studying Toyota, which, um, you know, the 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 version that most people got to see, which was the uh, Harvard Business Review, uh, decoding the Toyota, you know, the Toyota production systems DNA or some variant of that. And I, there was a, a line in there I thought always was sort of brilliant, and and I think part of one of the true essences of DevOps, which is he said that Toyota was a community of scientists continually experimenting. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, that notion going, you know, sort of drive it back to Deming, right? PDSA, right. You know, plan, do, okay. Study sure. yeah. and then act, right. Which is, you know, we're great in our industry of plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, but it is the scientific mindset. It's the scientific thinking that, allows us to sort of get out of the fear of failure it enables us for psychological safety because now it's an experiment you've been one day on a job um and you know and 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 somebody might think you're not sort of qualified for whatever reason to make a a decision well no here's the experiment like and in our environment experiments win you know uh, not, not not subjective like
1: yeah, I've been doing
0: this for like 30 years. I can tell you right now, if you turn that thing on, it's going to yeah. I
1: it, This is why it's so important to allocate capacity for experimental kind of work for this innovation, because if we're just only spending, uh, only prioritizing work or new feature work uh, and not allocating capacity for trying out new things and when will if we don't have any innovation going on that's problematic down the road with your with your competitors but I find time and time again that there's not time allocated for this experimentation uh, and and what to do about that is I I think this sort of falls in line with, how top identifies debt work as investments and in future improvements, which where experiment, experiments come in. And also, in Unicorn Project, the improvement of daily work, daily improvements, the third of the five ideals, Right. And how that's even more important than doing the regular standard work. That's Gene across. Kim's
0: latest book, or the um, Unicorn Project, which is where he has yeah. his five ideals, right? And which uh, really—that's yeah, one thing Gene does great, right? Like he—he he has. Well, you did this well too, right? Which is you codify these sort of principles. You know, sort of elevates what you've learned to be able to sort of explain the the story. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, and the need to do it consistently. And we know that I think it was Jim who first told me write a little bit every day. Don't try and just write on Saturdays. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like exercise. Yes, yeah, at working out fifteen minutes a day every day, or you know every other day, is better than doing a really hardcore workout one day a week. It it's builds common.
0: in. Yeah, I'm sorry, habit.
1: Ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's like
0: doing? kata, right? Like Mike Rotha talks about or Kata, right? Like you, I mean, to be you know, sort of great at everything, you, it has to be just a continual sort of memory muscle thing. So if you want to be great, in, you're right, like if you want to be great in innovation, you better put the bandwidth as an organization. I mean, you can just say we hire the smartest people and we're going to be the smartest company. <laughs> like if you're not allowing those smart people to innovate and you're not giving them the sort of kata, the memory muscle to... Um,
1: yeah, it's investing in the edges, yeah, the edges, yeah. The, the sort of the frontiers, uh, around the organization that sometimes automatically sort of pulls in the more, the more crazy people <laughs> that have these ideas that want to go in that direction that the fringes sort of a, yeah. around the typical normal best practice. I've sort of been on a rant about best practices. I talk about audit best practices a little bit in my book, but it has that fingernail on the chalkboard reaction mm. in me because when we use the term best practice, or this is a standard, it makes it sound like anything else isn't good. That's right. When we need to have other people trying new things and, and have good practices yeah. and not just this assumption that if you're not following this best practice, which of course you can't have, unless you know, cause and effect.
0: Well, and there, and there is no sort of, there's no perfect. There's no best, right? Like, complexity and complex systems and systems thinking don't also allow us to say, ah, you know, this line is the best, right? It's like, yeah, like maybe at that point it was the best probable. Yeah. I think words, you know, I was thinking back to, um, you know, like I I like the idea that like, I I think I've always over the years, we people, we have a debate about best practices and it, but then it sort of bubbles up to be sort of the, um, the norm of how we describe things. But but I think you're right having a pet peeve about it. You know, that circle all the way back to Deming, right? Like, um, you know, Deming never sort of created PDCA, right? It was this sort of the the Japanese, he called it the Schuett cycle. The Japanese called it the Deming cycle. Somewhere in that translation, it came PDCA. And he did not like the C because, so it's those little subtle words, like best, like is sort of a wrong word. He changed it to S because, um, C to the Western culture might've implied, or to him, he thought it implied approval. Ah, yeah. Right. And, and like, and that was not the sort of what that was about. It was really the scientific method, right? Like let's study the results and make a decision about the results. So, yeah, I think the way we use words is, is, um, is important.
1: The nomenclature impacts our communication. And I'm finding organizations putting a lot more effort now into glossaries and vocabulary and terminology to understand what are we really talking about here. And I'm thankful. I am I think that's a good thing to do. I, I know some organizations, one of the reasons that they use SAFE is because of the taxonomy and the nomenclature that at least now they, they can be clear on their vocabulary and the words they're using and that people can understand what they mean when they use a particular term. Uh, yeah, so, no. so much of the time yeah. we're having these conversations and using terminology in our vacuum or our bubble. I mean, the whole, the whole thing about business and technology and the vocabulary, can you say that in a word that I- that
0: mis- Yeah, or just having an agreement in an organization that when we use this word, this is what it means. I mean, um, you know, ITIL, like, I, I don't want to go, like, into this, idol, you know, there was, you know, you can flip a coin whether ITIL was great or bad, you know, and, and I don't care what your opinion, and not yours, but, you know, the collective opinion is. But one of the things I know for certain, was it was um, in a world You know, back when I was doing this, operations was the wild, what is pre-DevOps, this is wild, wild west, and at least was a way for everybody to agree on a set of terms. And, you know, when you take Eric Reese's work, right, um, you know, know, I've seen in organizations where he's coming in at, like, the highest level, and I happen to come in at organization later, and I find everybody's using, you know, the Lean Startup vocabulary, and again, whether you think that's effective or not, the point is I think an organization having an agreed vocabulary so that I'm not using a word from a different group in the organization and you're using a word, and we have two different meanings. So we're having a meeting, we have the whole discussion about it, and we leave, and we actually never had a conversation. Right? Two
1: different, two different perspectives driven by different. Are, are we thinking that the terminology used means something different than the other person?
0: Yeah. Well, um, so you know, you you know, you've been at Test Top for a while now, right? Uh, a few years. Um, what? How do people find you? Um, you know, I know you're always pre- well, you present a lot, and hopefully we'll all be back, and I can actually watch you live present next year. But so people want to find you or find anything you, well, obviously your book. We'll put a link to that. But how do
1: people yeah. find you? LinkedIn is a good place. Really, you can just find me on LinkedIn. Uh I haven't been on Twitter as much lately. So I've just been and, and I it seems to be a bit of a I see it you in know, others too. I see a lot more activity on LinkedIn. I
0: agree. Yeah, I agree. I, for years I just ignored LinkedIn because I always just thought it was a, a place to find a job. Yeah. And I didn't Normally, we didn't ever have to find a job through LinkedIn, but now I realize how powerful it is yeah. for, for community. And,
1: and TaskTop, I thought you were going to ask me, John, like, what do people at TaskTop think of my work? And I was going to say that yeah. years now, well, no, they accept the no. Okay, there you go. All right, awesome. awesome. If yeah. there's one person in the company who's going to say, no, I don't have capacity. It's probably going to be. We have to. We have to have somebody in the company. That's funny. That, yeah. that sort of keeps people honest and asks, "Do we really have capacity to take this on?" Or, "Okay, if X is now the highest priority, what are we?" So what is it, is is it like
0: what? What would Dominica do?
1: <laughs> well, maybe sometimes, yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah,
1: we're growing a lot, and uh, we have a great team now. I'm really happy to. That's
0: great. Now I know you got a big either. funding round recently, or recently so yeah it's it's great to see y'all doing so well over there so you know um a uh, Carmen I, I you know I love Carmen and, and you've got a great team over there different right. people so well yeah, thank you so much that. Dominic it's always good to see you I can't wait till we can see each other in person again That's so hopefully next year sometime. Yeah thank right. you John sure thank you
1: okay. bye 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 bye